Hello, my honey. Hello, my baby. Hello, my ragtime gal. Hey, that's me trying to stay cheerful in an incredibly, increasingly uh, fucked up world where shitty things just keep getting shittier. And I'm talking about the Russian bombardment and invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Wow, what a time in human history. There seems to be a big shift happening. Um... I, I love, let me start out by uh, saying how much I love the democratically elected President Zelensky of Ukraine. The guy was a comedian, for God's sakes. He did stand-up comedy, and then he was a, uh, an actor on television before he um, became president of Ukraine. And um, I thought it was really inspiring. I'm sure you saw it too, Those the audio of those Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island who uh, the Russian warship was saying surrender and they said back, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. Uh, It's pretty obvious the choice in the world, you know, um, you're either for tyranny or you're for the people of Ukraine. And, uh, you know, is this the start of World War III? Is it... um, the rebalancing of American politics where um, the Republican Party, specifically Trump, was subservient to Vladimir Putin. I think one of the most shameful things in recent American history was when Trump stood next to Vladimir Putin uh, in Helsinki and said that he was going to take his word over our American intelligence people. I mean, that and then Trump saying that uh, John McCain, he preferred his war heroes um, to not get captured. I thought that was pretty ballsy that uh, the Republicans stuck by him because he got out of Vietnam service with the rich kid excuse. He had bone spurs on his feet. So, um, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it, it's terrible that uh, the pipeline of Russian prostitutes will probably be shut off to... Uh, to uh, Trump in his inner circle, but I'm sorry, I'm just rambling, and uh, it's there's there's not too much funny about what's happening right now. Um, but um, I mean, I feel bad for any news service or politician who has been um, clearly with their nose in Putin's ass for the last uh, 10, 20 years because um, shit ain't looking good for. Um, for uh, the people who've been doing that. So I'm trying to stay cheerful. Uh, I had a good trip to Toronto, which um, I'll talk about another time in detail. It was freezing there. Uh, I had a very romantic week, but I am single. And it was a good last hurrah in Toronto. And um, yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. The, 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 the there's This episode today is... Um, a, the secret project that I've been working on for like the last eight or ten months. This is a small puzzle piece in that... Oops, sorry, I didn't turn off my phone. Shit. And that's my phone falling to the floor. Um, anyway. <laughs> yes, that's um, my producer of the podcast asking me if I was going to get them the intro soon. And that's what I'm recording. So... um 
I've been working on a, it's kind of a, a television show idea, and uh, it involves my love of history, and uh, that's all I'll say about the concept, but I'm about to start showing people this um, first film that I've made, and it's about Charles Bukowski, the drunk poet of Los Angeles, and uh you know, he wasn't a perfect man. He he had a lot of problems. I mean, you know, there uh, is there a perfect person other than Jesus? We all have dueling uh, natures in each of our characters, and and probably a, a, a balance of of good and evil in each of us. But uh, you know, you got to constantly be fighting that dark side and the negative thoughts that get into your brain and the negative evil shit that you let into your brain. And, you know, the, the, with, you know, political correctness and, and all these things uh, uh, of the modern age, Charles Bukowski, a lot of his stuff doesn't age well because he was a misogynist. He was um, kind of a, a, a cruel, bitter character in some ways. But the thing that I liked about Charles Bukowski was that he... He found great beauty in the ugliness of the world. He grew up in in poverty. Uh, he had low-level jobs. He had uh, a lifetime of hard, heavy drinking, and uh, and by choice hung out in the in in the dive bars of Los Angeles. But oh, oh, and he he frequented prostitutes. Um, the, the guy had and and he, and he gambled. Uh, the guy had some issues, but. He saw great beauty among the ugliness. And that is why I think Charles Bukowski is a person worth remembering and someone that you could find inspiration from. And uh, I recorded this conversation about Charles Bukowski with my good friend, J.T. Haberstadt. He puts on the Altercation Comedy Festival in Austin, Texas every year. Uh, He's a stand-up comedian. He's an author. He's written several books. And also, he's an artist, and uh, and and he also makes hand makes um, little action figures. And he made a, a special Tom Rhodes action figure that he gave me last October when I did the Altercation Comedy Festival. But uh, this episode is me talking with J.T. Haberstadt about Charles Bukowski, and um, uh, and and it, I just want you to know. I want you to find beauty in the ugliness. And that's, I guess, my overall message in the world. And, uh, you know, you got to stay cheerful uh, because the world is full of of bitter turds. And for me, coming out of last year's doom and gloom and, and loneliness and isolation that I felt for most of last year, it is a victory for me to put out a podcast once a week now. So, um, hooray, hooray for humanity, hooray for laughter, hooray for you listening to this, and hooray for the the, the good people of the earth who, um, you know, uh, have good hearts and are not bitter, evil, violent turds. So, um, I mean, you know, Bukowski had a a, a little dash of of violence uh, towards, I think, women in his life. But um, anyway, uh, I, I love you very much, and there are other topics coming. I, I just wanted to um, let you know 
give you a little hint, a little sneak preview of this idea that I've been working on for a while. And uh, this conversation was part of that. So it is my pleasure to present to you now the one and only J.T. Haberstadt. J.T., the first question I want to ask you is why was Charles Bukowski so important to you that you wanted to have him tattooed permanently on your body? <laughs> well, it's that moment where I, I think a lot of people discover Bukowski when they're in like their college years or their formative, you know, oh, he hit me when I was 16. For me, that wasn't the case. I was aware of Bukowski as a, a literary figure, but I was more uh, really heavy into the punk rock scene. So people like Lydia Lunch or um, Henry Rollins were people who I gravitated toward literary-wise. And through them, I'd always heard about Bukowski. But I was like, oh, it's just an old man with with beer. You know, <laughs> that was my impression. I was like, oh, it's an old crotchety guy with beer. All right. I think I kind of know what this is. And to me, also, poetry was, ugh. You know, if someone would say, oh, I'm a poet, I'd go, oh, gross. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it was just very... To me, that was like, oh, what are they, like Jewel, you know, like, <laughs> like where, and I had been to, because I did stand up, I had started like everybody doing kind of mixed open mic nights. And so the poets were always insufferable. Um, so it's I, not what you picture when you think of a poet. You think of a guy with like a feather pen and, uh, yeah, just some, really some, some ruffles on his shirt, maybe. Just super, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, the, you know, the, the, the frog peepers of the night, they sound, you know, like just, just poor man's Dracula quotes and shit like that. I was just like, yeah, I don't, it was very, I had no impetus to want to search him out, even though I knew that he, he was like a cultish figure. Cause I had read some burrows also. I was like, this is cool, but I'm not into heroin. And you know, so I, it didn't really relate to me much. Uh, whereas like Henry Rollins get in the van. I was like, Oh, tour journal stuff. This is engaging, or Lydia Lunch's spoken word, which could borderline poetry, but it was more visceral and just coming from this real angry feminist kind of pushing the envelope type thing. And so uh, I just didn't care enough to search him out until I was about 26. And strangely enough, I was working at a, a publishing house. Uh, I was an editor for a publishing place that did like five regional newspapers in New York. And I worked overnights because that's what you do when you're the editorial. You know, you wait till they finish the editorial and then you edit stuff. Can I swear? Does that matter? Yes. Okay. So they, Fuck yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, you wait for them to hand in their... their... It's, it's about Charles Bukowski. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only Christian language, please. <laughs> so, you know, I'd wait for... The, the writers to finish their stuff. The deadline's at midnight. We go to press at five in the morning. They pick up the flats and take it away. Well, they would never finish the shit until two in the morning. And then I'd be there till four and we'd edit and all that sort of stuff. But while I was there, there was a lot of downtime. Because you're just waiting for these writers to deliver their stuff. And a graphic designer I worked with was always reading Bukowski. And I was like... Can I borrow one of those? You know, let, let me try one of those. Because I had dabbled, I think the first book that I had tried by him was Pulp, which was the last book he finished right before he died. And it didn't grab me. I was like, let me try this. And I was like, oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, my, my. Was it, that, that, was, uh, that one didn't uh, knock me out either. In, in retrospect, having read his entire collection, or as much as I can, I think I've read everything he's written. Um, in retrospect, Pulp, I think, is his weakest book. <laughs> it just feels a little undercooked and a little 
diverging all over the place. That one seems rushed. Like maybe it was um, yeah for a book con to fulfill a book contract, or, or maybe he knew his time was clicking down health wise. You know, because he died I think not very long after that book came out. So what was the piece of writing by him that just made you just knocked you out and made you think? <laughs> you know what? I want to have his face tattooed on my leg forever. There's two. The first book I read that I borrowed was Women. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> this is because what I loved about him was like, he's not some hotshot who hit when he was in his 20s or this handsome debonair kind of guy. You know, because you think of like Fitzgerald and stuff like that. And he's just like roaring 20s and parties and suave and just in it. He was a as working class as you get and a, a gnarly looking dude. You know, a face, they say a face with character, right? Which means it looks beat to shit. He looked like boiled meat. And the fact when I read Women, I'm like, this dude, A, didn't really hit with his stuff till he was in his 50s, but was writing from such a young age. He just was had to do it, which is how I felt with comedy, too. It's like just something I have to do um, or you go nuts. And so when I read Women, I was like, this guy entered his like rock star phase when he was like 56 you know and it was just really was like inspiring to me that someone you know through their dedication and just their talent which became undeniable no matter how long it was in the game so that really spoke to me a lot but the thing that made me want to do the tattoo was his mantra of don't try which as like a diy kid because when I first started doing stand-up and stuff and, and writing, uh, bands like Black Flag, that like DIY ethic of like, all right, you want to be an artist? You're going to work 180 days a year. You're going to go out and tour. You're going to star for it if you need to star for it, but it's something you have to do. And the payoff is you don't have a boss and you're autonomous and the world can kiss your ass because nobody can, t you know what I mean? And if it doesn't work out, then you can always go get a job, I guess, you know, um, but his don't try mantra, a lot of people take it as, ah, don't try, slacker life, why bother? Or don't try to be a drunk all the time. <laughs> don't try and uh, be drunk when you write. That's how I first took that. Because it says don't try on his grave. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's another meaning to that. Well, well it's kind of what you can take from it, right? Because, I mean, he was very anti authoritarian and anti nine to five. Like, don't try too hard. Don't try to be. Uh, some great writer, that it should flow out of you right. instead of putting some uh, superficial effort into uh, yes. what you think the process is, that it should be this natural lightning strike, the moment of creativity when mm -hmm. it comes to you. Exactly. Like if you're trying to do it, then you're forcing the process and you have to have that impetus of the creative flash. And that's what creates great art is, is wanting to like, Oh wow! I just hit me with this this moment. I got to capture that real quick, and so yes, that. But also the kind of Yoda esque <clears throat> aspect of don't try, do it. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna be a writer, fucking do it. And any sort of creative outlet I've been in, you know, I've been in bands before. I I do stand up comedy full time now. Uh, I write books. Any of those things. Oh, I've always wanted to write a book. Well, fucking do it. It's hard. It's really hard. Books especially. I want to be a comic. I don't know where to start. Well, you start where all of us started. You just go out and try it, and then you kind of find your way. But the, to me, the concept of, uh, you know, I don't know how to do it. or You can talk yourself out of anything, right? 
So don't try to me has always been, no, don't try it. Do it or don't, you know? And if you don't want to do it, that's cool, but don't fucking complain, you know? Um, so those two folds, exactly what you said, like the lightning strike, like don't force the, the creative element and also just the impetus to like, you know, a lot of this stuff, Bukowski, you think he could do anything else? I mean, he worked at the post office for how many years and was still writing and still mailing stuff into oblivion. He never knew if people read it. They could have gone straight in the trash. He just had to do it. So that really spoke to me um, and really resonated. Yeah, and then he, he was in the uh, free weeklies mm -hmm. in L.A. Uh, and the article, the column was called Notes, Notes of a Dirty Old Man. Yeah, yeah. And then that became one of his first books. Mm -hmm. So there's the thing with Bukowski now, like looking at him through today's lens mm -hmm. of uh, wokeness and political correctness and all that, that a lot of people, you know, a lot of his stuff doesn't age very well with the, the sexism and uh, misogyny. and uh, But that's basically what put him on the map with the underground culture was... Notes of a Dirty Old Man. And that's exactly what his first writings in the column was about. Yeah, and I push back against that a little bit, too, because I, I, having read so much of his stuff, I don't really find him that misogynistic. I think, honestly, I think Bukowski loved women. Um, was he a little rough and tumble? Sure. Was there stuff that, you know, I'm fully on board with? No. Uh, but also, you read, let's see what's a good example. You know, I've seen kickback recently against like Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> you know, just yeah. like yeah, you can uh, find a problem with just you know, like oh, anything. he was a, he was a model for a school shooter or just <clears throat> an anti. You know, you can you can pick apart anything to a degree where it just becomes yeah. I, again, I'm not you know I don't know how familiar people are with her, but like Lydia Lunch, you could argue that she's anti-man. You know, because it's very coming from a feminist, angry thing and i don't think bukowski's i'm unfamiliar with her so um, okay, yeah let's not make any more lydia lunch sure references. okay sorry <laughs> you should check her out you'd if her. i don't know who she is i'm sure she's, most... <laughs> she's great but yeah um i mean but, but i think he wrote with great sensitivity about women and he had great mm -hmm. respect for women i, I think uh he was obsessed with his dick a lot and uh but who amongst and, and, us? and fornicating but i mean who in human history hasn't been right i mean and it's how we uh propagate the species mm -hmm. but um you know he he operated in some very low life um uh you know uh, arenas yeah but i also feel like if you read a lot of his books not women specifically because that was kind of his lethargy you know, he was very much like in his um, I, the women are coming to my door and I'm going to enjoy this phase. But if you read like Factotum, he talks about encounters with women that were, he, were his equals. He was attracted to them because they were also, you know, bar flies and just kind of tough, gritty women. He liked women who didn't take any shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to me, that's, there's nothing misogynistic there. That's the opposite. There's a great respect there. Um, and, you know, a good friend of mine also who, you know, he's also a writer and he... Bukowski was an early influence on him, but now he's kind of pushed back against him a little bit. He's like, oh, it doesn't, hasn't aged well. I'm like, yeah, man, but your favorite band is still Guns N' Roses. <laughs> you know? You yeah. look at that. That's some that's some gnarly, misogynistic stuff, too. You know, I remember buying Appetite for Destruction and opened up that art, and it was like the robot attacking the woman and all this. And like, you know, that doesn't look great now. But it's, I'm like, I'm like, Bukowski's kind of the Guns N' Roses of his time. So if you like them, how do you find fault with this? And he kind of went, God damn it. Yeah, you're kind of right. So, 
I, I don't know. It, his, I, I never feel at all bad about having him tattooed on my leg. I never go, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was, it hasn't aged so well. Maybe people think I'm a misogynist or, or that I'm just a. Well, I was thrilled to find out you had the tattoo because it meant I had someone I could talk to. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great moment Bob for both Bukowski. of us. I, oh my God. Yeah. I, I needed someone to talk with. Yeah. It worked out great. Um, so, so yeah, I, you know, the, the woke culture thing, you know, read him, you know, if you, if you dive in and also his poetry is so for somebody that was so like, Oh God, a poet, his poetry knocked me out, man. He, he is, I mean, you could definitely accuse him of sometimes harping on similar concepts to death. All right. The dog track, you know, all right. The, the horse track. The horse he, track. He liked, I'm sorry. The he horse liked. Track. Uh, he loved betting on the horses. Right. Yeah. At the horse track again, or, you know, I'm in another dilapidated <laughs> uh, hotel on Skid Row, trying to avoid the the grouchy super who's trying to get my rent. You know. So there's a lot of recurring themes. But, uh, nevertheless, like when he hits, his best poetry, I think, is a universal. It's not like toxic masculinity or anything like that. I think it's very much about the human condition in terms of, um, you know, go out there. It's your life. The naysayers will try and tell you what the right path is, but ultimately fuck them, you know, ultimately go your own way. Cause it's your life. You get one life. And I think that's universal. I don't think that's men shit. Yeah, and I think uh, survival through creativity, you know, like he had it rough throughout <laughs> his life. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. abusive father and yep. uh, hard scramble, uh, fighting growing up with life and everyone and alcoholism and yep. uh, dive bars and shit jobs and everything. And he stayed creative throughout it. And and writing about these scenes and, and stories that he was living that, uh, I, I mean, that's kind of a life preserver to, um, to, to turn your life into art or stories or poems. Mm -hmm. And it's the full circle though, the yin yang too, because it's like, all right, how much of that was him fighting against the odds to do this art and how much of those experiences completely fueled that art, you know? So it's like, all right, I, I had a rough face, you know, when I was growing up, he had a very like pockmarked face and just was, uh, women were very, you know, three arms length and bullies and stuff like that, picking on him and, and his home life with his dad. And then you become, you know, you become a 20 something man and you find yourself in the bars and it's like, well, now I'm going to rough and tumble and fight with these bullies. You know, I'm not in the schoolyard anymore. And then that though defines him to a degree of not taking shit. And that finds its way into his writing. And, you know, the concept of, well, I need to have a job to live. <laughs> you know, because I think he worked, before the post he worked at like a chemical factory, you know, and he just, I mean, Factotum is, is pretty much about him bouncing from gig to gig just to survive to do the writing. He's like, well, I'm going to do this, but you're going to get the bare minimum for me because this doesn't matter. This is what I need to do to have my room with my typewriter and my bottle of wine. And... You know, there's something I think, I don't want to say heroic about that, but I think there's something very admirable about that. 
Yeah, I mean, now people are um, walking away from jobs all over the place and mm-hmm. not seeing the importance in it. I mean, he, he had <laughs> he had no respect for for any job. Yeah, he just uh, just wanted to survive and have enough to drink and write. Yeah, one of my favorite. Uh, I read an interview with him, and one of my favorite things he ever said was that you know he would forego food. You know, he'd buy a, a six pack of beer or a bottle of like gross port wine or whatever he was drinking at the time before he got a real booze budget. And he said he would save up his money and every two days he would buy one candy bar. And the candy bar that he always got was payday, (laughs) which is the payday candy bars. Like it was like just peanuts and a little bit of like chocolate and stuff. And he's like, and I remember caramel, caramel, the center. Yeah. I see. Big fan of payday. Big payday. There's no chocolate in payday. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I haven't had a payday in a while. So, So, but he was like, and it was important to me because I was like, all right, it's my payday. And every two days he would eat that. And that pretty much got him through like the week aside from just, you know, I don't know, pancakes. He always would make pancakes too because it was just like starch and and water. It's cheap. (laughs) Yeah, it's cheap. He's like survival, you know? And so that kind of like tenacity of the cockroach as the slogan goes was always appealing to me too. It was just like, you know, you see so many people, uh, you know, you've been in this game a long time. I've been in it about over a decade. And and you see a lot of people that kind of like give up on their dreams and what they're what I think they're supposed to do. There's nothing more tragic to me than somebody that, you know, has talent and like this. I'm supposed to be a writer. or I'm supposed to be a comic or I'm supposed to be a musician. And you, they have the talent. You can be say like, yeah, you are. A lot of people aren't. A lot of people don't have the thing. And you're like, well, all right, it's a self, self-weeding out system. And at a certain point, you can go get a straight job. But I see a lot of these people that take a, a straight job where they're making 50K a year. And it's okay. And it's not a bad job. But they just kind of settle. And that has always terrified me. And I think fear is a good motivator to keep kind of grinding in that way towards what you, what your inner you is saying, I'm supposed to be doing this. Uh, but that's scary as shit too. I don't begrudge anybody that's like, I can't just quit my job and try it full time or whatever. Well, there's so much in life that will beat you down no matter who you are. Yeah. And I think that's the thing about Bukowski is like, he was really beaten down mm-hmm. by his father uh, from the beginning and just uh, having this really ugly face with the um, acid scars from the acne treatment. Yeah. And uh it, 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 you know, until he started, until he hit as a writer, uh, you know, just everything in life had beaten him down and all of his jobs. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's so much in life that makes people give up on their dreams. Absolutely. And even when he hit, you know, like when he started to get respect and and a little bit of heat where he'd do readings and people would show up and he'd make a payday. He didn't quit his post office job until... Black Sparrow Press said, I'll give you a hundred bucks a month for the rest of your life if you'll quit your job. That's what it took. It took that just amount of like, all right, my rent's covered and I can buy my candy bar or whatever. I'm sure he was eating much better. No, he figured out like how much he needed in booze and cigarettes and food and rent. Right. And um, the Black Sparrow Press guy Mm -hmm. got it for him so he could write full time. But I mean, if that guy hadn't presented him with that offer, who knows what kind of output would he could have gotten, you know, it could have yeah. been way diminished, you know, cause, cause it allowed him to just concentrate on the work, which is what he should be doing. You know? well, well, another thing I love about Bukowski is, and making this 
making this uh, mini documentary, whatever you want to call it, making this Bukowski episode, the thing I learned is that Bukowski spent so much of his life in a very small area, like in a 20-mile radius of Los Angeles, from where he grew up and where he lived in Hollywood and then where he lived at the end of his life in San Pedro. And the guy really loved Los Angeles. He did. He loved the grittiness of Los Angeles. He loved uh, the hope and potential of Los Angeles, uh, the illusion of the, uh, of, of the glamorous dream to the... Um, reality of um heartbreaking poverty like mm -hmm. he just thought los angeles was paradise on earth yeah i mean i i associate bukowski almost completely with la um and it's interesting too to me how much people associate him with skid row and sleeping on park benches and stuff and then if you you know when he hits his famous period in his sixties and stuff where he's really made, you know, he's made it to his mind. He's got a nice car and nice clothes. And he's like, yeah, that was never fun. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I wasn't in the trenches on skid row and sleeping on park benches because I'm like, Oh, this will be good for the book. <laughs> it it yeah. sucked. You know, he's like, it was a means to end. I had nowhere else to go. Um, or just wasn't willing to give an inch to have, you know, another night in a nicer hotel or whatever. And so um, that aspect, I think, is is interesting as far as his legend and, and association with, with L.A. of like, oh, he was, you know, he lived in the bars because he loved it and ran with all these ne'er-do-wells at Skid Row because it was his people. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true. I think it was circumstantial to a degree. Because after he hit uh, a level of popularity, he didn't really go back and do that very much. He would drink at home. Yeah. You know? Uh, well, he started drinking in nicer places, like Musso and Frank's. Oh, really? He stopped going to the frolic room. Yeah. And then, yeah, he was definitely happy to get away from the Hollywood dive bars after yeah. he made it. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think Bukowski in the rest of the world is considered an American literary icon, mm -hmm. but in the United States, he's really kind of only known uh, as like a cult underground figure to... Uh, a select few of people who stumble across him. I wonder that also because I know, like in in France, he's he's enormous. He's like a godhead in France, you know. And I think in Germany as well. Um, I just think Europe has a larger appreciation for the arts as a whole, and and there's something like when you say associated him with Los Angeles. Bukowski is an American poet, you know. He's he is defi He's to me, you know, like. You think of Hunter S. Thompson. He is an American gonzo, you know, whatever you want to call Hunter, you know, a writer, I guess, is the best way to describe him. Um, and so there's something just definitively uh, hyperinflated about that Americanized, uh, A, determination of doing things on your own terms, which I think is very attractive and a little... We love individualism. The guy yes. was the quintessential individual. Exactly. And I think maybe to Europeans, because, you know, uh, maybe it's romanticized to a point of like, oh, that's an American thing. Like he was in Hollywood and, you know, uh, a lot of my friends, I live in Austin, Texas now, and a lot of my friends, when they travel abroad, they say, where are you from? They're like, Texas. They're like, oh, John Wayne, cowboy. You know, yeah, it's, right, it's right. that impression of what that is. And so I think maybe there's a greater appreciation globally for him because of that, because it feels like a legendary 
American story. Whereas when you live in America, uh, it's easier to be a little jaded about what that means. You say, oh, yeah, well, I also live in Pasadena. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen dive bars and it's just hipsters. And yeah, I run past the skid row because that sucks. And so I think maybe the reality of living in America taints the the legend aspect of it. Also, you could argue that Americans just aren't as literate. I mean, I hate to say that, but it's. I feel like overall as a country, there's less emphasis on searching out really cool literature. I mean, I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think people like Willem Burroughs and stuff like that are also held in high regard across the nation than they are here. You know? Yeah. Well, I think Bukowski represents the, the, the flip side of the American dream. Like the underbelly of Hollywood. You've got the image of glamorous Hollywood and the movie premieres, which right. was happening less than a mile because he lived uh, like near Hollywood and Western. Mm -hmm. And then Hollywood and Highland, like a mile away, is where movie premieres have happened for years and Man's Chinese Theater Man's and Chinese just theater, yeah. glamour and the Academy Awards and just mm -hmm. a mile away, <laughs> this guy is, you know having bar fights and, uh, <laughs> right. you know, in, in, in the, the lowest dive bars of, of, uh, of Hollywood. And that's, um, that's, you know, the flip side of the American dream. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's what they don't, what they don't want you to see on the travel brochures. <laughs> right. But that's also, and I don't want to limit it to Los Angeles, but that's also a, a big thing, a realistic part of the LA experience too, is that for all the glamour and all the, you know, it's a movie star walking down the street and, you know, the walk of fame and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of desperation here. There's a lot of people, the dark side of like, I'm going to make it, you know, like, and they just don't. And that kind of, that can be sad and scary and all those sort of things too. So there's always been like a dichotomy of Los Angeles. It's amazing. I mean, the paradox of Los Angeles is when you see like homeless people sleeping in front of mattress stores, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. uh, it's like, how is that possible <laughs> yeah. in, uh, a in, in a Christian nation mm -hmm. that somebody can't just help these people out. But, yeah. you know, there's so much, you know, you see, you know, Rolls Royces that are hundreds of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. just driving through the, the, the poorest neighborhoods mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the, the, there's that duality of, of Los Angeles that's uh, more visible here than I think most places. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um, I, I mean, I don't know why his, his voice kind of just echoed heavier across the world than it did here. Um, it could also be a degree of like you were talking about the the kind of pushback wokeness thing too. There might be a um, you know because I, I think most people discover Bukowski like I said in their teens or twenties and they either really relate to it or they really don't. And the the concept of you know a teenager now hearing oh Bukowski oh he hated women or something like that they're just gonna like well I'm not gonna read that I don't want to that's you know something that hasn't aged well that. Yeah, my uncle liked him a lot, but I don't agree with my uncle on a lot of things, too, you know, <laughs> something like that. Well, I think also for me, like Bukowski represents sadness and isolation. Yeah. And I think uh, people have had that in abundance in the last couple of years. So, I mean, maybe, maybe that alone would be something people could identify with. But in, in all the sadness and isolation and suffering, you know, he kept that pilot light, yep. uh, that flame of, 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 of hope. 
yeah. and seeing great beauty in the world alive in his heart and in his writing. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, I, I know what you're saying. Sadness never permeated so much as melancholy to me. It was more of a an overwhelming, just kind of like, like a heavy existential sigh almost of like, uh, man, another day, you know? Um, and then it, that's something that I think also either attracts you or it doesn't, you know, a lot of the music I listen to is kind of, of a similar vein. I just, I'm attracted to that kind of melancholy. I like sad music. I like books that are kind of, uh, not brutally depressing, you know, you don't want to read stuff that's just like, oh, this is just a bummer. Well, you go through different right. periods in your life, you know, Not like, too. I mean, I, I used to listen to the blues constantly. That was my my main thing uh, when I was in my 20s. And I think I was a happier person. And I think I was like attracted to the sadness and the, mm -hmm. the, the suffering of of these men who had you know, lived the toughest circumstances in life. Uh, now that I've had tough circumstances in my life, I don't listen to the blues that much. I'm, I, want, <laughs> I, want, I want something more Got uplifting. Enough. Right. And I was in my 20s when I discovered Bukowski. And for the same reason, I just, uh, I gobbled it up. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> we'll cut out that cough. <laughs> Okay, so how long have we been running? Uh, half hour. Okay, good, 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 good. A lot good. of good, great stuff. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so uh, let's freeform some thoughts here. Cool. Um, what are some of your favorite Bukowski quotes or or sentences that you can remember that knocked you out? Um, you know the the great one that a lot of people hit is you know find what you love and let it, let it kill you. I mean, that just is, that's comedy to me. <laughs> that's stand-up comedy, baby. You know, because that's just like, I love this thing. Uh, you know, for better, for worse, I'm, you know. It's tough to do it. And like a poet, like very hard to make a living at it. Hard to make a living yeah. at it. You know, I've been grinding it out for about six, seven years now full-time with it. And it's, it's a, you gotta, you gotta work. You gotta be your own self-starter and do it. But also, it's that thing of like, man, <laughs> everybody's seen the comic who's, you know, in their 70s or whatever, is still doing the same hour they've been doing for it. It's like, it can go either way, right? You can either just find what works and then be like, all right, now it's my job and I have to do it and I have no backup. Or it's that thing of like, I love this and I'm going to do it until I fall over. You know, I have no retirement aspirations because I like to work too much. And also, retirement, I'm going to sit home and just... The adventures are out there. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? The stories are out there. I, you know, I, I, as I get older, the physicality of touring becomes more difficult. But also, ideally, if you do it longer and, and get, get better, the comforts also come a little bit easier, right? So I'm not, I'm not sleeping on somebody's couch. I'm sleeping in a hotel bed. And uh, I'm not going to go out for two weeks. I'm going to go out for nine days. You know, like I'll just shave it a little bit. And yeah, we'll take a day off just because we can. Um, stuff like that. So what does Bukowski mean to you personally that you think people who haven't discovered yet mm -hmm. would find so lovable and attractive about him? I mean, it's... Why should we care about this man? Well, first of all, his body of work. I mean, he put out an amazing amount 
of material because he wrote uh, every day pretty much into the night. And that's something I responded to a lot too because I'm a night owl and I do all my creative work and writing at night. And the fact that he would just be at home at his desk typing away with a little bit of like classical music playing and a cat. You know, like I I just, I really related to that because I was the same way. I was like never a morning person, but I was just do all my creative writing and stuff at night. And so the thing that I think he was able to be so prolific and now he's been gone a long time. And every year I think there's still a new package of stuff that I haven't read before come out. You know, some of it does a little overlap. There'll be a degree of like, oh, okay, a couple poems that I've heard before, but there's, there's stuff that's still in the archives that hasn't come out yet. So that's an amazing body of work. And so that I think is pretty incredible. And for every book that some people may be turned off by, like some people may read women and be turned off because of just the the kind of bed hopping sexuality of it, of like, oh, he was just using these hot 20 year olds that were showing up at his door. Well, you know, you could say that about a lot of rock stars and a lot of other people too, but um, I can understand why some people may be turned off by that. But if you read a lot of his later poetry stuff, there's a stuff that's, there's material in there that I think is really inspiring and can kind of make it sound melodramatic, like take you back from the brink. But there's been times where I've been, you know, depressed or something and I'll read a Bukowski thing and be like, yeah, all right. Like it's going to be okay. And also these things that are putting me in this headspace, fuck all that. It gives you perspective. I love post office. I love Hollywood. Those Mm -hmm. two books are novels. Yeah. Uh, but the poetry is what I always like the best. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're quick and easy reads. And then a lot of them read like jokes or stories. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the, the, the insight on, on, on different things, on, on a life that I personally don't want to live. I don't want to, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to hang out. And uh, I, I had my time in, in dive bars. Yeah. And um, I don't want to fight. Uh, I, I don't want to be with prostitutes. I don't want to do all of these. Uh, he's like the secret agent who's there collecting the facts <laughs> when you read the, the poems, you know, right. and like poems about his abusive father and, yeah. uh, you know, life in Los Angeles and uh, so many things that, that you know, um, uh, as as. You know, uh, someone I could I could enjoy the the insight and uh, the world he saw without me having to live these experiences firsthand myself. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I when I read Ham on Rye, I was on vacation with my parents and I was reading it on the beach, and it was a lot of stuff in there about how abusive his dad was, and it was physical for sure, but just the mental abuse and just like the. the the, the cutting comments and stuff. Well, that's why I've never understood why anybody would uh, physically abuse their children when damaging them psychologically is so much more permanent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more effective for sure. But I remember reading that on vacation with my parents and I was I would put it away, you know, after each day and go, God damn, I'm lucky. Yeah. You know, it really made me feel... Well, better. I think when you read all of Bukowski's stuff, you really, I think that's the feeling that you have is like, wow, I I really came from good circumstances. Yeah, so I, right. I didn't realize how yeah. great my family was and what a great life I have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's a good... Until it's, it, it's a good uh, comparison. Yeah, it reaffirms a lot of like, oh, good. It's all perspective. He just gives good perspective. Uh, but also the concept, I think, again, of like success. What does success mean? Is success, you know, 
the mansion and then all the material items or success just not having a boss and not having to go to this place you hate every day. You know, those are different. Those are big, different things. And one's way more attainable than the other if you just adjust your circumstance. You know, everybody's got to pay bills. But it's like when I read those things, it's like, oh, he's not a millionaire. I mean, maybe towards the end of his life, he was doing pretty well. But, you know, when he was just starting to do that $100 a month forever, just do the work thing, I'm like, oh, I could... I think I could be a comic if I budget okay and I don't buy stupid shit and I just, you know, the, the currency of your time is worth so much more, I think, ultimately than finance, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, people rob themselves of happiness all the time and you think, like, fame and riches is your is your thing, but, you know, what is important in life? Like, the in the book Post Office, he hates the job. Yes. He's absolutely miserable. But like his greatest moment in life is when he crawls in bed next to his girlfriend mm -hmm. and he warms up next to that big, beautiful ass. Yep. <laughs> and so he, he says this in throughout the book that mm -hmm. that's his greatest moment mm -hmm. in that period. He's, he, he's miserable. Everything sucks. He's, he's barely getting by financially. But just that moment when he crawls in bed next to that big, warm, beautiful ass. Mm -hmm. And like that just... You know, what more do you need in life? Well, that's it. It's also the, the glory of him making it, right? Because it's the ultimate, all right, I'm going to do this on my own terms or not at all. And then when he does get his kind of just desserts late into his 50s or whatever, it's kind of like the ultimate, well, fuck you. <laughs> you know, like, fuck all of you naysayers. I did this on my terms. And now... Ha ha, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's like Tom Waits also. That's, you know, Tom Waits, he's like they broke the mold when they made Tom Waits. You know what I mean? And he's had a long and storied career. But, you know, could Tom Waits do anything else but be Tom Waits? You know, I don't think so. Uh, and so to see these talents kind of, for better, for worse, uh, go the path that they have to go, regardless of, you know, I'll work a day job or I'll, sleep in this park bench or I'm, I'm in the drunk tank and I, I missed this job. I guess I lost that job because I'm stuck here. Um, I'll just find another job and keep writing. Um, that kind of tenacity, doing it because you have to do it. It's what burn the fire inside you is what burns you to do that creative outlet because it's what you're supposed to be doing. And so I, I find that really admirable, you know, just like the because I think a lot of people suppress that in favor of security and and just kind of a a, a more non-terrifying pathway and to me that's really sad because i'll see a lot of people that are like brilliant artists or, or musicians or whatever and they're working a job that i they don't hate it it's not a bad life but it's not it's diminishing their potential in a way that i find really kind of tragic well, keeping that sparkle in your eye and keeping that flame lit, uh, that's the the most important thing in life. I agree. I think so. Yeah. What is the greatest praise that you could give Bukowski and what is um, uh, the most critical thing you could say about Bukowski? Um, it's a good question. Let me ponder for one minute, sorry. I mean, the greatest praise I could give him would, I think, again, come back to the body of work that he released and just how much stuff he put out. But also that he, <laughs> like, 
he had a lot of peers and stuff, but something I really like about Bukowski, which mirrors kind of the stand-up comedy scene, is you you know, friends and peers, and that matters more than all the accolades uh, in, in the greater public. You know what I mean? Because it'd be like, oh, the, the public is really responding to you. Okay, that's good. That That may come and go. But the fact that other writers appreciated his stuff, I think really mattered to him. And I think that's something that really resonates, you know? Um, Cause all, all comics I know that matter to me, we can all be like, wow, that person sold out a stadium or whatever. Like, well, no accounting for taste, <laughs> you know, like it's <laughs> like right on. I'm glad some people like it, but uh, as comics, we don't really care for it, but it's, it's marketable and people like it and it's not awful. It's just not right. But, but the fact that like, you know, a comic that I admire considers me a peer or, or even, you know, being friends with you, that, that matters a lot more to me than, <laughs> than, than larger commercial success. And I think with Bukowski, that was a similar thing. So I think that was a really, that's the mark of an artist, you know, where it's what matters is the other people that you respect having that respect back for you. Um, in terms of something that I would maybe take him to task for, um, <laughs> it's kind of hard to defend him kicking his wife on the couch. That's brutal. And I, <laughs> you and I have both seen like all the videos on Bukowski and yeah. there's that one interview where yeah, he just loses it. And he's, he gets, he kicks her off again. It's very, it's, it's, it's violent and it's terrifying. It's, 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 it's I mean, I remember seeing that, uh, 25, 30 years ago and like, Oh Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, it's hard to defend. Wholly unnecessary and, yeah. uh, wholly undefendable. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the, the the guy had moments in his life that are, um, you know, uh, pretty pitiful. Yeah, uh, that that one is, I think, the the kind of linchpin for a lot of people because a it was filmed, and so it's not him describing in a passage. Yeah, this thing where you can kind of be like, oh well, where did he blur the lines between fiction and reality? And it seemed there? unprovoked because she's just sitting there next to him as he's waxing on for the cameras and drinking. You, you know? can see his temper snap. Yeah. And it was just a I'm really sure he wasn't a very pleasant guy to live with. I'm and, sure he wasn't. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm sure his wife, Linda, um, had uh, many more uh, moments like that that weren't filmed. I have no doubt. And so that stuff is, is kind of hard to defend. I would not want Bukowski as my roommate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, yeah, I mean, that largely is the bulk of it. Just the, the, the stuff that maybe no one really did see where he would kind of lash out in a way that was really not okay. Um, but I, I don't know how much that creeped into his work. You know, I don't know if that's the same as, as a, a kind of critique of him as the person versus him as the artist and the stuff that I responded to. But that was something that when I saw that, I was like, Ugh, that's, that's hard for me to, people can point to that. And I go like, yeah, I can't defend that. Yeah. That's you know? undefendable. Yeah. Okay. Do you guys have any questions? <clears throat> Maybe. Uh, what do we got left? Like eight minutes? We've been fiddling total for uh, 43 minutes. We got Fantastic. Minutes of stuff, yeah. cool. Okay. What if you talked about a little bit of the tattoos so that way we can cut into like the tight shots or something? Yeah. Maybe just a little bit or something? Sure. Just so we can, when we, when we edit it, we, we can bring it up and you know, somehow. Sure. Mm -hmm. So the, who did this tattoo and uh, what can you tell me about this tattoo process? Uh, <laughs> it hurt. Uh, my friend Miranda in New York did this tattoo 
at uh, a tattoo shop. I don't I like tattoos, people. but I'm always impressed by portrait tattoos that look like the person. Like I have a friend who had an Elvis tattoo, but it looked like Kurt Russell. You know, uh, so so I think that's like I think in the artistry of tattoo work, I think portraits are I, I think are the most impressive uh, uh, technique or skill in that uh, yeah. art form. Well, yeah, and and with my Bukowski tattoo, I actually didn't want a legitimate portrait. I didn't want just some other person's face on me. You know, like I I have a lot of literary tattoos. Um, this is Edgar Allan Poe's skull with a raven on it and stuff. And uh, we got H.P. Lovecraft over here and stuff. You like the dark shit, don't I you? I do, man. <laughs> it's weird we're friends. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you need light in your life. <laughs> and, uh, but with the Bukowski tattoo, I'm like, I don't want just a, like a, a photo rendering of Hank. Yeah. Um, and so I scoured online for a long time until I found an image of something that spoke to me. And it's... It's it's like a character drawing of him, but it's everything that I associate with him. It's just him at a desk with a typewriter. Because when I was young too, uh, way before I got my first Commodore 64 or any of that, I was never a big computer guy, even though I'm glued to my laptop now. But you're easy like Sunday morning. <laughs> nice. Uh, I, uh, but when I was like, you know, 10, 11 years old, I would type out, little plays on my parents' typewriter. So I always thought the typewriter was a really romantic thing. I really liked typewriters. Uh, and so I wanted something with him, at a typewriter, bottle of beer, cigarette. And he wrote so, most of his stuff on the typewriter. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. wasn't a he wasn't a computer guy. No. I think I think at some point he got a word processor because he could like do the backspace and white out like mistakes. Yeah. And I think I read he like threw it out the fucking window or something after he was just like, nope, you're just typewriter. And um, and so I finally, I'm like, I want those things. I want him, at a typewriter, beer, cigarette. And I finally just happened across on, online this image, and I was like, that's it. Because it's him kind of stylized, a little cartoony. But, um, yeah, I don't know. For some reason, I, I, I would feel weird about having an actual, like, photographic portrait done of some other person on me. But, but this <laughs> just spoke to me, and I was like, that's... Well, and you and you brought me a gift. Uh, I did. What can you tell me about about this beautiful man? So, that is an artist named Coop, who's really uh, well known in the, in the art world for uh, doing devil imagery. Devil imagery. <laughs> a lot of like devils with cigars and big buxom women devils. He's he's very kind of R. Crummish in that the women have a giant tits and ass you know and yeah. it's just like uh he's got a type and so he became very famous through all of that and he started doing uh art prints of other different figures he may have done a, a hunter s thompson as well i don't know but basically his stuff is like you know you have to be on his mailing list and then he does a a lottery thing of like hey if you got this email you can buy something from me now it's in the store if you don't get this in an hour it's going to be gone and i'm giving your number to somebody else and i happen to pop in on the day that that hit and i said he did a bukowski he made a hundred of those happy birthday tom and thank so you. Thank <laughs> what, a, what a great uh, birthday gift yeah it to, worked, to give me it worked out great with the timing of this because i knew i was coming out to see you and everything i was just like man that yeah. um so yeah so i i decided i wanted the bukowski tattoo because i have a lot of literary tattoos and 
unbeknownst to me, because I have like my chest tattooed and my back tattooed, the leg where I got the piece done is one of the most painful areas that I've got done in my entire body. And I didn't expect this. Uh, and it's because it's right along the shin bone and that's real thin in there. And God damn, did that hurt. And ironically, uh, the part that was closest to the shin bone was him holding up the beer. And so the, the best part of his day, the bottle was the most painful for me. <laughs> it's like, that's some, that's, thanks a lot, Hank, you know? Awesome. Well, aside from being a stand-up comedian, uh, you also make custom action figures. I do. And you made a wonderful Tom Rhodes action figure. Yeah. Uh, have you made a Bukowski action figure, or do you plan on it? Because um, then he could have little accessories, like a little, you know, beer bottles and typewriters yeah. and things like that. Yeah, I... Um, yeah, I started racing during, forms. <laughs> yeah, during during pandemic, I started this making custom action figures under the banner JT Customs, and just out of I couldn't tour and I needed a creative outlet, and people started responding to it, so I got kind of lucky there. Um, but I did make a Bukowski, and he came out pretty cool. It's him, um, you know. I just kit bash these things they call it, where you just take Frankenstein parts and make the art piece, and it was him. Uh, going to the post office. Well, I wanted to combine the post office elements without making a post office Hank. And so I had letters in his hand, which were manuscripts. He was going to mail and he had a bottle. And so it was him like walking to the post drop to mail just another thing. And uh, yeah, that sold real quick. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I have parts that I started messing with. I don't know if I've showed you any of them, but I, I do like 12 inch figures now too, which like the old GI Joe style figures yeah and i've done some of those for various uh uh people and and so i'm working on a bukowski a barfly specific one of that that i want to do but i haven't tackled it yet because for better or for worse touring is coming back a little bit and so <laughs> the toy work has been regulated to when i'm home or when well it's a beautiful talent and i think the tom rhodes action figure you made is uh, also one of the greatest gifts I've ever been. Man, given. I'm so glad so you like it. So thank you for your friendship. Thank you for thank you, uh, brother. your Charles Bukowski knowledge. Thanks. And, I uh, mean, I'm just so happy that, uh, you know, it's great to have friends that discover after we've known each other so long that, oh, wow, we both like that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. So thanks for having me. Man. You're welcome, brother. Long may you run. Tom Rhodes, your funny man. Tom Rhodes, you're an international comedian. Tom Rhodes, karate kick, baby, oh yeah. Tom Rhodes, you're a groovy dude. You go all around the world, telling jokes to all of the people. You are an international comedian. Funny to everybody in every single country in the world. Tom Rhodes, I like you very much. I think you're talented and very wonderful. Tom Rhodes, you're the best guy in the world. I wanna be your friend. You should call me sometime. Here is my phone number: six zero three six four four zero zero four eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Rhodes. You're an 
international comedic sensation. Tom Rhodes, I like to listen to your podcast. Tom Rhodes, you're the best man to ever walk on the earth. <laughs>